Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. everyone. So I just got back from a quick trip to Berlin, Germany, which really was the epicenter of the 20th century. And in typical Julie style, I went to a lot of places, did a lot of things and took a lot of notes. And each place that I went, I kept thinking how much I wanted to share my impressions with you. So I'm doing that right now in this episode. I'm Julie Hartman, and this is Timeless. everyone. Welcome to Timeless. An extra big welcome to those of you who are new to this channel. And of course, a big welcome to, to the returners. I hope that each of you are having a great week. Just a reminder to hit the subscribe button down below so that you can stay notified every time I post a Julie Noted News video or a Timeless episode. And also be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Julie R. Hartman. Now, Machiavelli who is one of my favorite philosophers. You would know this, especially you returners, if you listen to Timeless. Check out my episode, Machiavelli Myths. I think it's a uh, particularly a good one. But Machiavelli would say that every once in a while in a nation, you need to have refoundings. You need to remind people of the principles of the country that they are living under. And I think that is true, too, of a talk show. So just to remind all of you, this show, Timeless, is about timeless, eternal subjects. I love talking about history, philosophy, art, architecture, music. And if it's not about a timeless subject, I try to suffuse whatever I'm talking about with a timeless worldview. I believe that there are certain enduring truths and standards that are true across time and space and that can be applied to the present moment. So that is what this show is all about. And I think Machiavelli would be proud of my little refounding here that I should probably do more often on this show. But hey, you got to start somewhere. So those of you who do follow me at Julie R. Hartman on Instagram and Twitter will know that I have been traveling a little bit. It was actually a really quick trip that I went on. It was only six days, but I feel like I packed a lifetime into those six days. I, I would venture to say that I set a Guinness World Record as to how much an individual can do in a foreign place being extremely jet lagged in a short amount of time. I went to London for three days and then uh, I went to Berlin for three days. I went with my parents and the whole genesis of the trip is that my parents were actually going to go to London. They were invited to a wedding and they were talking about it and I said, oh my gosh, I would love to go to London. I've been to London before, but it, it's been probably about uh, six or seven years. And then I said, oh, I just wish, you know, that, that I could travel more. I'd love to go to Berlin. Berlin is obviously a place with such rich history, and I'm a self-proclaimed history nerd and addict, so I just voiced how much I would love to uh, travel more. And my parents said, well, why don't we make this into a little trip? Come with us to London, and then we'll tack on Berlin for a few days. And they said, 
just be forewarned that we won't be able to spend a lot of time with you in London because we have to go to the rehearsal dinner and we have to go to this wedding. And I said to them, trust me, I will be just fine. I will find things to do, places to see. And I did. I could do a whole show on my experience in London, specifically my experience in Westminster Abbey, which is my favorite place on earth. Not one of. It is my favorite place on earth. But today I'm going to talk about Berlin because, as I said in the introduction, it really was the epicenter of the 20th century. I'm going to get to why that is in a moment. I'm going to go through the history of Berlin from uh, 1900 to 2000, which is not shocking to any of you who listen to the show. You know I can't help myself. I have to talk a little bit about history. And then, of course, I'll get to my thoughts and impressions of the trip. But first, I just want to say a quick note about traveling. Traveling is exhausting. Traveling takes a lot of money and time and energy. But the thing that I love about it is that it allows you to glean some wisdom that your daily routine doesn't necessarily offer to you. You can be the most curious, learned person. You can read all the time, watch a bunch of documentaries, and really strive to learn about the world. But through no fault of your own, you will kind of stay in a bubble because by staying in the city that you're in, you're interacting with the same people, you're driving on the same highways, you are in the same cultural milieu for years and years on end. So it really takes breaking out of that and traveling in order to reach particular insights that you just can't reach no matter how much reading or research that you do. So I really love that about traveling. And the cool thing, too about going to different places in the world, is that you see the human condition in another environment. I love going to a different place, even if it's a different place in the United States, and just trying to figure out, how do people do things? How do they do things differently from the way that I do them? What are some of their colloquialisms that they say that I don't necessarily say? You know, was, when I was in uh, Berlin, one of the things that I immediately noticed talk, talking about doing things differently was when I went to the bathroom and went to go wash my hands, there was a totally different device that, that allowed you to dry off your hands than the one that we have here in the United States. The one here in the United States is for total dummies. You go up to it, you have the hand sensor, it gives you the the piece of paper, you wash your hands with it, you throw it away. In Germany, this was literally my first discovery upon landing in the airport when I went to the bathroom, they have this contraption. It's actually amazing. I'm going to put up a, a video or a picture of it where they have like a piece of cloth and you yank down the piece of cloth, you dry your hands with it, you don't tear it off, and then the machine like funnels it back in, cleans itself, and then produces a new piece of cloth. Talk about doing things differently. Those Germans clearly have some eco-friendly, pretty uh, efficient way of allowing people to dry their hands. It's just stuff like that. Obviously, I'm going to talk to you about my bigger takeaways about freedom, about historical memory, but even just seeing the way that people dry their hands differently is worth noting. It kind of expands your sense of the world and, and what is possible. I said a note about colloquialisms. You know, when people come to America, uh, foreigners, I should say, when foreigners come to America, sometimes they will remark on the way that we um, exchange messages of goodwill. In America, it's typical when you just want to have a pleasant encounter with someone to say, how are you? 
And we kind of fly through it. We're not really asking how a person is. We just go, hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. And it's just this kind of exchange. Imagine if you said, how are you? And someone really answered. If they said, oh, well, actually, my dog died yesterday or I just got laid off of work. That's not the point of the American, how are you? A lot of foreigners take note of that when they come here. That's not something that we Americans would even think about. It's just so part of our daily lives. And the reason is, in a lot of countries, there are built-in exchanges, greetings, that allow you to kind of get over that awkward hurdle. For instance, in Russian, they say something along the lines of, um, hello, may you be healthy. And the person says back, and you be healthy too. In the Middle East, in Arabic, they say, peace be upon you, and upon you be peace. There's no, uh, there, there's no um, uh, similarity to that here in the United States. So we just throw in a how are you to try to make things less awkward. So again, just cool stuff like that that I'm trying to point out to you that, that you can pick up when you travel. I also love listening to the way that people speak. Germans, the German dialect, and forgive me if there are Germans watching, and I don't mean to offend you at all, but it's a kind of guttural, deep-voiced uh, way of speaking. There's this uh, Platz, or this center of Berlin, and I heard so many people saying, Potsdamer Platz, Potsdamer Platz. And they say it with this kind of, again, like low voice. It's a little bit aggressive, and it's just kind of a different way of, of speaking and of communicating. I'm not necessarily saying that there's anything wrong with it, but it's kind of a bombardment to the American ear. I bet a lot of Germans and a lot of people around the world would say of Americans that we have a perpetual, dumb, valley girl-sounding accent. Isn't it interesting to contemplate? To me, the German accent sounds very aggressive. But to other people, the American accent probably has a, a totally different and perhaps also negative sound to their ears. So that's another thing. And the final thing that I look out for, in addition to these, these little details, is how does history impact or affect these individuals' ways of life? And this is, of course, particularly and especially relevant in Berlin, Germany. Perfect segue, if I do say so myself, to the history three-minute portion of this show. As I told you, I can't help myself. I got to tell you about it. And also, it really informs why I was there in Germany and some of the sites that I saw. I would like to divide German history in the 20th century into three categories corresponding with the three major events of the 20th century. World War I, World War II, and the Cold War. Let's start with World War I. It was from 1914 to 1919. We're not going to get into the details of what happened. It's kind of a mystery, honestly. I, you know I love history. I can't figure out what it was about or, or who started it, whose fault it was. It seemed to have just erupted into this world war. But, but the point for the sake of, of my discussing it with you is how it ended. It ended in Germany alongside the, the Ottoman Empire and the Austrian-Hungarian Empire losing. This was a catastrophic defeat, particularly for Germany. The Treaty of Versailles was the peace treaty. Many laugh at the fact that people call it a peace treaty because it led to, to warfare, i.e. World War II. But the peace treaty, at least for the time being, was the Versailles Treaty that was really set forth by the United States, France, and Great Britain. That treaty was particularly harsh on Germany for a few reasons. Number one, 
it held Germany responsible for paying enormous reparations or war, war debts. Great Britain and France in particular hated Germany. They blamed Germany for starting the war, and they wanted to impose a really harsh deal on the Germans to get them to feel bad for supposedly starting the conflict. So Germany had to pay these enormous reparations. By the way, interesting historical fact. Take a moment at home and guess, when was the date that the last German reparation to the Allied powers was paid? I think it was in 1940, 1950, 30, 40 years after the war. Take a minute and guess. Three, two, one, I'll tell you. October 3rd, 2010. Isn't that amazing? 90 years after the war, it took them 90 years to pay back those reparations. It shows you just how enormous those reparations were. That's one important thing to know about the Versailles Treaty. And the other, of course, hugely famous and important thing to know is Article 231, which was the infamous War Guilt Clause. This held Germany and the German people collectively responsible for, quote, causing all of the loss and damage in the war. That is kind of an amazing stipulation. Whether Germany deserved the wrath of the Allied powers or not, it is just not fair to say that one country and one people is collectively totally responsible for all of the bad that happened during the war. But nevertheless, this was put in the Versailles Treaty, and boy, did the Allied powers and the rest of the world pay for this. Because what happened in World War I the punitive deal that the Germans got as a result of that war paved the way for the rise of Hitler and World War II. That is not my way of condoning it. God knows. I'm just explaining what happened. The German people were upset. They were incensed that they were given this big deal. And also, World War I was not fought on German soil. It was fought elsewhere in Europe. So when Germany surrendered, a lot of everyday Germans never witnessed the war in their lives. They were just hearing it from a far-off place. And so there were these rumors that started to circulate that Germany actually didn't lose the war, that they were winning, that they were advancing. But the United States under Woodrow Wilson and Great Britain and France made Germany surrender under a promise, a false promise that they would protect Germany in peace negoti negotiations and then ended up screwing Germany over. That was a rumor that started to circulate. But that's important because the German people didn't see a lot of the warfare themselves. I'm talking about everyday civilians, of course, not so soldiers. So after World War I, Germany was really suffering. The Great Depression, the worldwide economic calamity, kicked the ball over the finish line, and it really allowed Hitler and the Nazi party to ascend to power. This takes us into part two of three of German history in the 20th century, of course, World War II. Germ uh, Hitler, excuse me, became chancellor of Germany in 1933, and then he rose to become absolute dictator. Just brief summary of all of this. I'm not going to get too into the weeds, but it is important to know. Uh, Great Britain, France, and the United States wrongfully pursued this policy of appeasement with Hitler. They had their eye on him. They knew that he was uh, displaying some really scary and authoritarian and dictatorial tendencies. But nevertheless, they didn't want to provoke another war. So when Hitler started to annex Austria and annex other parts uh, surrounding Germany, and then, of course, the Sudetenland, which is the German-speaking part of Czechoslovakia, these allied powers allowed it. This was the policy of appeasement. We're going to let him do his thing as long as he doesn't go too far. 
Well, this was like giving a, a toddler throwing a tantrum a cookie. The toddler's never going to shut up when you give him one cookie. He's going to want the whole bag. This is what happened with Hitler. The policy of appeasement was a total disaster. Hitler invaded Poland, and then World War II was launched. It really is amazing to think about how far Hitler and the Nazis went into Europe. I mean, I think in 1943 or 1944, the height of the, the Nazis' power in Europe, they were in France, they were in Denmark, they were in Austria, Hungary, Belgium, I mean, just all over the continent. It's, it's kind of uh, amazing that, that they were, a, thank God, they were able to be defeated. But at one point, they basically controlled the whole continent. Thank God, in 1945, the Allied powers prevailed. This was largely because of the effort of the United States, Great Britain. France was an allied power, but France itself was actually occupied by, by the Nazis, as I just said. So they were unable to help in the same way as some of their allies. And one of the biggest powers, the biggest power, that helped the end of the war was the Soviet Union. The war ended in the Battle of Berlin in 1945. This is when the Red Army, i.e. the Soviet Army, advanced into Berlin and took it over. There is this famous photo, which I'm going to put up, of a Soviet Red Army soldier on the top of the Reichstag, which is the German parliament, and he is hoisting over the parliament a Soviet flag. And you can see in the background, uh, Berlin is just decimated by the aerial bombardments that were dropped by the United States and Great Britain and the uh, on-the-street gun uh, warfare. You know what's amazing about that photo, too? I also learned this in Berlin. That was a staged photo. Many famous photos, especially in wartime, are staged because it's propaganda. It's very important for a certain country to have an image in warfare. That was a staged photo. And it was also, the photo that you're seeing was the second iteration. The first photo that was taken was similar. It was of a Red Army soldier hoisting the flag over the Reichstag. But in that first photo... That Red Army soldier on his forearm had nine gold watches. Why? He stole them from dead Germans on the street. When the, the Soviets went in, launched the attack to take over Berlin, obviously a lot of civilians died and a lot of soldiers would, would pick up items that these, these uh, civilians had. And so that particular guy had nine watches on his forearm and the photographer who was arranging this photo said, take those off. You're going to get flack, and we're going to do photo part two, and that is the photo that has become famous and that you are seeing. This is when Hitler killed himself in his bunker. I saw the site of the bunker. Of course, the bunker is gone because of all of the aerial bombardments, but there is a place that is marked of where the bunker was. He was Hitler was with his uh, wife of two days, two days, uh, Eva Braun, who he also killed, and the war ended with the Soviet Battle of Berlin in which they prevailed in 1945. So that brings us to part three, which is the Cold War. Germany has been defeated. World War II, at least in Europe, is over. In the Pacific, it took a little longer for the war to end. The, the war ended in Europe in April of 1945. It took until August of 1945 for the war to end in the Pacific when we, the United States, dropped the two atomic bombs. But the war was over in Europe. And here we have the three top allied powers, the United States, Great Britain, and the Soviet Union. 
and they come together and they are trying to figure out what to do with Germany. Germany was utterly decimated. Most of Europe was utterly decimated. Two out of three European Jews were killed in World War II. That is staggering. So these powers come together. There's no German government with which to negotiate. There is no peace deal to sign. No one's in charge of Germany. It is literally physically, morally, ethically, and always possible wrecked. And they are thinking, how are we going to go forward? So President Truman of the United States, Prime Minister Churchill of Great Britain, and dictator, father, whatever his title was, Stalin of the Soviet Union, came together in Potsdam, Germany, and met for the famous Potsdam Conference. They couldn't meet in Berlin because Berlin was bombed, so they went a little down south to Potsdam. I told you that I went everywhere. I did so many things, took so many notes. I actually went to Potsdam during my three days in Berlin, and it was absolutely amazing to go to the site where this famous uh, negotiation was held. And this is the site in which the United States, Great Britain, and the Soviet Union agreed to divide up Germany and divide up Berlin. I characterize this Potsdam conference as the Cold War era of German history because this is really when the Cold War started. Some people may think that it's a bookend to World War II, and that certainly is true. But the reason why historians date the start of the Cold War as 1945 is because of this Potsdam conference. The United States and the Soviet Union were allies in World War II. And here at this conference, they became kind of cool adversaries, competing over power and influence in Germany. The Soviet Union wanted to expand its power. They wanted to expand communism all throughout Europe. So Stalin was fighting for that to happen. And then, of course, we, the United States, alongside uh, Great Britain, were fighting for a Western rejuvenation of Germany. So there was a compromise. Those of you who are listening, I encourage you maybe to go on YouTube and look at a map of this, though this is a listener-friendly show. I'm going to explain what it is, but it's always good to just see a visual as one I am putting up. This is what they decided to do with Germany. They decided to partition it between West Germany and East Germany. West Germany was controlled by the Allied powers, United States, Great Britain, and France, and East Germany, being closer to the Soviet Union in the East, was controlled by the Soviet Union. Now, there's a little bit of a problem that these individuals encountered. Berlin, the capital of Germany, the epicenter of the 20th century, the capital of Nazi Germany, was in East Germany. So the United States, Great Britain, and France said, wait a minute, if we're going to partition this country, we don't want you to have total control of the capital city, even though it's in your part of Germany. This is what they said to the Soviet Union. So they struck another deal, that they would divide Berlin into a western side and an eastern side. And that's what they did. So here we have, in East Germany, this little part of the capital city, West Berlin, as an island of freedom amidst the Soviet-controlled part of the country. Well, spoiler alert, it didn't work out for very long. This was agreed to in 1945. But what happened was over the next 16 years, a lot of people who were living in East Berlin and in East Germany under Soviet rule, 
rule decided to escape to West Berlin or to West Germany because they didn't want to live under dictatorship. They wanted all of the freedoms that come with being in a Western-controlled part of Germany. Actually, in those 16 years, 4 million East Germans moved West. So here we have Stalin and the higher-ups of the Soviet Union who are going, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't want all these people making an exodus to Allied-controlled parts of Germany and Berlin. What are we going to do? This is when the Berlin Wall was built. Literally overnight... In 1961, the Soviets turned off all the lights in Berlin, and they overnight started building a wall around the city. Of course, it didn't just take one night. It took a lot of time because it's 90 miles. It's a big part. Uh, West Berlin was a, was a big uh, part of the city. But they started building this wall that went around West Berlin. This wall wasn't so much to enclose West Berliners in Berlin What it was functionally meant to do was to keep East Berliners and East Germans from escaping into West Berlin. It's a little complicated, but that was essentially the point. I went to the the place in Germany, several places where they have remnants of the wall, and it really is so eerie and scary. On the wall, there were uh, these writings, a graffiti of of what people wrote. And there was this, at least at the part of the wall that I was at, there was this big graffiti question, and and it said, why? And there were names of family members that were etched into the wall because people were separated. And it was just really a dark time in history. The wall went up in 1961, and it didn't come down until 1989. There was such a big difference between the way of life in East Berlin and in East and in West Berlin. And you can even see that. When I was there in Berlin, I thought that there wouldn't be a recognizable way of distinguishing between the two segments because we're in 2023 and it's been a while. But there actually were. You went into East Berlin, and although there wasn't a wall up, you could see remnants of Soviet control. There were a lot of Soviet realistic uh, murals or... um, Uh, mosaics that were still up on some of the buildings. A lot of Soviet and communist art, as I said, is realist. And they have these depictions of like the perfect worker, the perfect teacher, the perfect student. And those were still up in parts of East Berlin. Also in East Berlin, there were these prefabricated Soviet buildings. Soviets didn't allow for a lot of art and architecture. Even though it sounds maybe weird to our ears, A flourishing of art and architecture and music really needs to, goes along with being in a free society. When you have the freedom to express your ideas however you want, that is going to lead to beautiful art, architecture, and music. When you're in a Soviet or communist-controlled society, they don't want you making certain political expressions or thought expressions. So the art itself is very confined. So you're walking around East Berlin and you see these murals and they're just creepy. They're remnants of communism. These prefabricated buildings are also these remnants because architectural moldings, Corinthian, Ionic columns, things that are allowed in the West weren't really allowed in the Soviet part of Berlin because they were seen as remnants of the West. Another thing that was interesting about the difference between East and West Germany is that there were a lot of railway tracks in East Berlin as opposed to West Berlin. Why? Because... 
under Soviet control, it was more economically primitive. They didn't conceptualize that everyday citizens, a lot of everyday citizens, would have their own cars. So they built these railway lines as a way of mass transportation. And then you go over into West Berlin and you see that the streets are designed in a way to have parking spaces, to have car lots, and just so much, so many differences that are amazingly still stark. As I said, the wall came down in 1989, two years before the wall went down. President Reagan gave this amazing speech where he was standing in front of the wall. Let's listen to a part of it. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Before I continue with more of my thoughts and impressions, I told you I went everywhere, I saw everything, and I was exhausted at the end of my trip, and so I was happy to come home and get some extra sleep, which was facilitated by my my pillows. Yes, I sleep on my pillows; they are extremely comfortable. I also use Giza Dream bed sheets, which are so soft and really facilitate a good night's rest. And to add to the my pillow merchandise that I have, I walk in every day to work wearing my slippers because they are incredibly comfortable, much more so than heels. You can have access to all of these great products at a discount if you go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square and use the promo code Hartman, that is my last name, spelled H-A-R-T-M-A-N. Mike's latest deal is the sale of the year. He is creating a discount off of those Giza Dream bed sheets. You'll get 60% off of the Giza Dream bed sheets that come with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty if you use the promo code Hartman. And you will also receive a set for as low as $39.99. For a limited time, with any purchase, you will receive Mike's soft cover book, Free when you use the promo code Hartman. Again, just go to mypillow.com, click on the radio listener square, use the promo code Hartman, or call 1 800 566 6745. That's 1 800 566 6745, and use the promo code Hartman. So I just talked about all of this history. My gosh, so much happened in the 20th century World War I, World War II, and then the Cold War. Berlin was really at the center. And as I was saying, when you go throughout Berlin, you really see it. I was talking about the differences between East and West Berlin. You see the Soviet influence in the East and the Western influence in the West. But to Germany's credit, they have a lot of monuments, a lot of plaques, also acknowledging the Nazi history. In the center of Berlin. You can't miss it. It's right by the Brandenburg Gate. It's right by the Reichstag or the Congress. There is this enormous memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe. Interestingly, it's not called the Holocaust Memorial because in Greek, Holocaust means sacrificial fire, so they didn't want to call it a Holocaust Memorial, but they call it the Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe by the German people. 
Those three words by the German people are a really impressive and necessary addition. Isn't it amazing? It wasn't even 80 years ago that World War II ended. 80 years ago right now, it was 1943. World War II was in, in its heyday, was in its, was, was in its prime. 80 years ago, the Nazis were controlling Europe. And then 80 years later, in the center of Nazi Germany, there is now a memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe with that addition by the German people. I admire Germany and the German people for taking responsibility, for not hiding from their past. Now, a cynical person would say, well, of course they're doing this because it helps with tourism to be able to go to all these sites. But there are many ways in which Germany seeks to honor and show guilt, show responsibility for its past. When I was walking around um, East and West Berlin, for instance, I noticed there were these little gold plaques on the street. They were, they were small. If you were looking straight, you wouldn't be able to notice them. It's only if you were looking down at the sidewalk. And you would go up closer to them. These are called stumbling stones because you're intended to kind of stumble upon them and notice them. You go up and look closer, and they have the names of Jewish families that used to live in the buildings next to where these plaques were put. And these Jews were taken by the Nazis, put on trains, and sent to concentration camps. And so the German government has installed these plaques, putting the names of the families, putting the dates that they were sent to the concentration camps, and even the dates, if there is a record, where they were exterminated in the concentration camps. That is, that is an amazing thing to do. I mean, look, it is the bare minimum, but if you look at Japan, which was equivalent to the Nazis in its terror in China, in South Korea, in much part of the, the Asia Pacific, the Japanese government does not take a lot of responsibility for what Japan did in World War II. In Japan, there isn't even close to the amount of monuments or things recognizing their past as there is in Germany. One of the biggest uh, and perhaps the only monument that seeks to honor the, what, what happened in World War II is actually the Hiroshima Peace Park. And it's supposed to commemorate the victims of the atomic bomb. Of course, those victims ought to be memorialized and commemorated in some way. But that park is about what happened to Japan. It's not about what Japan did to other people. Germany has seemed to go in the other direction where they really do want to publicly take responsibility for what happened. I even noticed this when I was talking to everyday Germans. I would go up to people on the street and I would stop them and I would say, do you mind? I'm, I'm a tourist. You can probably tell by my valley girl, American, dumb sounding accent. Can I just talk to you a little bit about what it's like to live here and what it's like to you know, be ethnically German and to have this history. And so many people who I talk to would just say how much shame that they have, even though many of them were not alive for what happened, just the fact that it happened by their people and in their own country. I remarked to one of the Germans who I was talking to on the street, I said, oh my gosh, it, it's, it's so sad that Berlin was just decimated during the war. I mean, it's not sad in the sense that, that you know, it got rid of Hitler, thank God, but just the fact that Berlin used to be this really resplendent city. There used to be these beautiful buildings that were as glorious as the ones that you see in London and Paris, and it was all level. It was all destroyed. And I just said it's sad that, you know, we don't get to, to see that old Berlin. And this woman who I was talking to, she responded to me, and she shook her head, and she goes, nope, nope, we deserved it. 
we deserved it. And I thought, wow, that's a real graciousness of spirit that, that I, I hugely admire. It raises questions about how to deal with memory, how to deal with parts of our history that we are ashamed of. That is certainly a big conversation now in the United States. One of the other Germans who I was talking to, I talked to a lot of them, said, I think you in the United States obsess about your history more than we do. And actually, I think that person might have a point. It appears to me, and I'm no expert, that Germans, at least today, have kind of an appropriate uh, way of approaching their history and moving on to the present. They understand and acknowledge the gravity of it. They never want to forget it. They never want to ignore it. They never want to have it happen again. But also there's the sense that you got to move on. And then here in the United States, we have very ugly, dark parts of our history, make no mistake. But we obsess about it, and we, we talk about it so much. And there are people who endeavor to make Americans feel so guilty on a daily basis for that history, and I'm not so convinced that it's healthy. If you look, too, at the monuments in, in Germany They really are to kind of have that appropriate understanding of the history while also moving forward. We have a different relationship with monuments here in the United States. Obviously, there's been a huge culture war here about what to do with Confederate statues, and it has resulted in, I think, almost all Confederate statues in the South being torn down and put in museums. Now, there's an argument to be had that having a Confederate statue which glorifies the Confederacy is different than having a memorial to the Jews of Europe who were murdered. In other words, it would probably not be well received if there were a Nazi statue that remained uh, up in Berlin. But we have a different history. It was a different thing. And there is an argument that, that I think I am sympathetic to to leave those Confederate statues up so that we can be reminded that such evil existed here. You know, when you take a Confederate statue and you put it in a museum, people who go to the museum may be able to see it, but not everyday people are going to go out of their way to confront their American history. I think it's a powerful thing to walk through your city and go, wow, this happened here. You get that sense in Berlin. You won't anymore get that sense here in the United States. I'll say one thing before I move on to some of my other thoughts just quickly about that Jewish memorial in the center of Berlin. I'll put up a picture of it now. It's very modern. Now, you guys know from listening to the show, especially my most recent episode on art, that your host is not particularly admiring of modern art. But actually, I really appreciated this modern memorial. There were a bunch of blocks. And as you walk into the memorial, you kind of descend down, and the blocks become bigger than you. And a lot of people think that they may represent graves, they may represent uh, tombstones, individual people, blocks or bunkers in a concentration camp. It's it's very eerie, and you get kind of a a gloomy sense, which is obviously appropriate, of of a memorial that, that deals with such a dark thing. Here's the reason why I found it to be so powerful. While I was there, there were these adult delinquents, you know, like guys with chains and black hair, and they're playing music. And they were running around this memorial like it was a maze, and they were trying to catch 
one another. And then they would climb up on the blocks and they were jumping around from block to block. Again, like it was some like video game that they were partaking in in real life. And I was standing there at this Jewish memorial watching these adult delinquents doing this. And my first reaction was, oh my God, what are you doing? This is the Jewish memorial in Berlin. How dare you disrespect and defile this site the way that you have? But then I realized something, and this actually made me appreciate modern art maybe more more than I have before. The thing about that memorial is is that it does allow adult delinquents to take advantage. But maybe in a way, that's a good thing. Because it impels people like me. It impels other citizens to stand up and speak against what they are seeing that they dislike. That was the whole problem with the Nazis' rise to power. A lot of people knew that this was not right, that that Hitler was a a freak, evil freak. But they didn't want to say anything. They didn't stand up. And so here we have this memorial, and it impels you to tell people to stop doing that awful thing that you dislike. That's That's a very important thing to have at a memorial. And to bring it back to this discussion of Confederate monuments... You know, a lot of people say that they don't want to keep up Confederate monuments because a neo-Nazi or a white supremacist may go and, like, plant a flag there and, and use it as their station. You know what? Let's say that happens. That impels us to go up and fight. That impels us to go and, and stand up against evil. That is a good thing. So anyway... My experience seeing these monuments in Berlin kind of made me see this American culture war in a different light. And I think it would behoove a lot of Americans to consider the way that Berlin deals with its past. Moving on to another thought that I had. You know, I'm a conservative. Shocker, I know. (laughs) But I love and really appreciate freedom. I gained such a different understanding of freedom when I was in Berlin. We tend to think of freedom really kind of as freedom of speech and freedom of association. But going to Germany and learning more about what happened under the Nazis and what happened under the the East Berlin Soviet control made me realize that there are these little freedoms that we have every single day, and we don't even conceptualize that they are freedoms. I was talking with someone who lived in East Berlin And she was saying that um, she actually had to smuggle in. Or sorry, I was talking to someone whose aunt, and I wasn't talking directly with this person. Someone had an aunt who lived in, in East Berlin. And he would smuggle in a West Berlin TV for this woman to watch. Because in East Berlin, under Soviet control, they were only allowed to watch one channel on the television. Pause right there. We go home every day and we turn on our TV and we scroll through all bunch of channels. You can go to Fox News, you can go to CNN, you can go to MSNBC, you can watch the Weather Channel, you can watch Reality TV, you can watch the History Channel. And we just think of it as like a given. We just think of it as like, oh, everyone has a TV with all these channels. No, it is a freedom to turn on the TV and have such a repertoire of options. It is a freedom to be able to go on. If we want to as Americans, we can watch German TV. We can watch Chinese TV, Russian TV. We, can, we have such information right at our fingertips. 
How about the book burning that occurred under the Nazis? There's this really, really amazing memorial uh, where they burn the books. I'm going to put a picture of it where you go to uh, the center of the square where the, where the Nazis burned Jewish and communist books, and there's this, um, this rectangle, and you look down, and it's clear, and you look down, and they installed an empty bookcase under, um, under the memorial. And you look down, you see the empty bookcase. It reminds you of all of this death of knowledge that occurred with the burning of the books. And then at night, you know what they do at this memorial? They turn a light on. So this light shines through the clear rectangle, and when you drive by, it looks like something is burning. It is such a gift for us to be able to go check out books, even communist books, Marxist books. However, even if you hate or disagree with the ideology, to be able to read it, to be able to have access to it, that is a freedom. Freedom of religion. There was no religion allowed in East Germany, in East Berlin, or the Soviet Union. There continue to be places on earth, such as communist China, that do not allow free exercise of religion. We don't realize, especially the lefties who disparage religion, we do not realize what a gift, what a privilege it is to be able to exercise whatever religion we want. To have a Bible or a Torah or the Quran in our house without having to hide it as people would have to do in East Berlin. To be able to go into a mosque, synagogue, or church, show your face, go in without any fear that someone would be following you or watching you or seeking to uh, enact revenge against you. We are just so, so privileged in these ways that, that regrettably we forget. A final one. I really was hammered home to me in Berlin was the freedom to just be able to go places within our own country, to be able to cross borders without papers. People in East Berlin were not allowed to go into West Berlin because the Soviets didn't want them to have a taste of what allied freedom was like. There's a great clip about this subject in the movie The Hunt for Red October, where a Soviet is talking about his dream of being able to move about freely in America. And I will live in Montana. And I will marry a round American woman and raise rabbits. And she will cook them for me. And I will have a pickup truck. Or um, possibly even a recreational vehicle. And drive from state to state. Do they let you do that? Yes. No papers. No papers. State to state. They're just dreaming about a recreational vehicle going state to state. We just do that and think that we are totally entitled, allowed, and privileged to do it. Ideologies are as much of luxuries as physical items. That is really what I realized being in Berlin. It is amazing to me that there are so many people in this country... United States, who romanticize and glorify communism. They wish that the United States would be a Marxist state, would turn into something like the Soviet Union. That is a luxury to have that way of thinking. That is a luxury to be able to even express that publicly. That shows that you have such a little understanding of the world, 
specifically of communism and what people had to endure in order to entertain that thought. That is an ideology which I like to call spoiled brat syndrome. We think of luxuries as cars or clothes or jewelries or vacations. Ideologies are just as much luxuries as items, too. And my final impression that I'd like to share with you, and it's corny and we do hear it a fair amount, but it really can't be said enough, is that what happened in Germany in the 20th century can happen anywhere. It is amazing to consider, truly amazing, that Nazism proliferated in an educated, Western, quote-unquote, civilized, religious, learned nation. Germany was on par with with, uh, Paris, France, and, and London, England, as far as the cultural, religious centers of Europe. It was like the United States of America in the early years of the 20th century. And no one would have guessed that that place would descend into the dregs of evil that it did. What happened was these so-called educated, civilized, religious people became enthralled with an ideology. And even those who weren't enthralled, they knew something was wrong, but they didn't speak up against it because they refused to believe that it could spiral out of control as it did. We are seeing a parallel now in the United States. There's a large segment of the population that is enthralled with an ideology that is romanticizing communism or socialism, that is saying that America is an inherently defunct, systemically racist place, that gender is as fluid as the tap water running from your sink. There are those people, but then there are also a large swath of individuals here who know that that stuff is crazy. They know that the Oregon Department of Education's assertion that finding one answer in math is white supremacy is nuts. They know that Michigan State's new uh, law that was passed in the legislature, which makes it a felony to say the wrong pronouns, they know all of that stuff is crazy, but they remain silent. They go along with it because they are too afraid to stand up and they think, huh, this will pass. Not even 80 years ago, the Nazis controlled Europe. If it can happen there, it can happen here. And if we here are so afraid to even stand up to wokeism, this, if, think about it. It is one of the easiest times and places on earth to stand up to evil. You can stand up to evil here and nothing will happen to you. Your rights will be protected. It is also so easy to be able to raise your hand and go, uh, I don't think it's right to say that finding one right answer in math is white supremacy. It may be other things. It may be hard to find one right answer in math, but it's not white supremacy. That's not exactly a hard thing to do. But we have so many cowards here who won't even do that. So let me ask you this. If we can't even stand up to the smallest instances of wokeism, do you think we would be able to stand up to real evil, such as what happened in Nazi Germany? I don't know. Thank you all so much for joining me today. I'd like to end on a little bit of a happier note because I know that that was kind of heavy. I just want to tell you that I am on such a high after this trip. I know it sounds weird to say in conjunction of, um, with a pretty gloomy discussion. And of course, there were parts of the trip that were just, that really overcame me. It was, it was, I was overcome with emotion standing in a site where such evil took place. But I do feel like I'm on such a high because I understand the world better. That is a very empowering and important feeling to have. 
And if I want to do anything in this show and in my career, I want to bring some of that understanding that I may have gleaned to each and every one of you. So thank you again for being here with me. As a reminder, hit the subscribe button down below. You can also email me at julie at julie-hartman.com. I love hearing from people. A quick note, I actually met with someone who emailed me in Berlin. His name was Wilhelm, is Wilhelm. He's a Dennis and Julie listener. He emailed me a few months ago and he said how much he loved the show and he listens to Timeless. And then when I was in Berlin, I met up with him and he was so cool. He taught me so much about Germany. We went on all of these tours together. So that is just to say, you never know what will happen if you email me. See you all soon. Take care. Take care.